Hey there, I'm Hannah Rosen, and I wanted to let you know that Invisibilia is back on June 1st. This season, we're asking the question, how is it that two people can look at the exact same thing and see something completely different? You can listen and subscribe to Invisibilia on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Carol Kane's one of those actresses that's pretty much terrific in everything. Could be a bit part as a production assistant in Annie Hall, a sort of elven wife in The Princess Bride, or in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where she plays Lillian, Kimmy's landlady. It's a great show. Carol Kane is one of the funniest people in it. Her character is a relic from old New York. She says she looted everything she owns in the 77 blackout. But that doesn't mean she won't drop an occasional reference to contemporary stuff like Uber or the Arcade Fire. But here's part of what makes Carol such a great actor. She doesn't actually know a lot of those pop culture references. She just, you know, she just brings it. There are things that I say on Kimmy that I don't understand what they mean at all. They're so um, up-to-date that they're almost, like, ahead of time. You, you know, and they, they are things to do with the, the modern computer world and everything that's hip and cool and of the moment. And I don't know. I've got references to, you know, things that I say. I just say them, and people laugh. <laughs> it's bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk with Carol about her role on Kimmy Schmidt, which is back for its third season on Netflix. She's been in the game for over 45 years now, had more than 100 roles on TV and in movies. Does she still get nervous when she auditions for something? You bet. My mother's always saying to me, honey, you just got to try and develop a, a little thick skin, you know. And I just never was able to do that. And did you know Carol was in Scrooge, the Bill Murray Christmas Carol? She played the ghost of Christmas present. She had on fairy wings and a tutu and everything. She even did her own stunts, which in this particular case meant hitting Bill Murray a lot and, like, hard. I did not actually hit his face with the toaster. I came close, but I missed, thank God. Later on, you'll hear live comedy from the great Chris Fairbanks, plus... I'll tell you about The Larry Sanders Show, a sitcom about a fake talk show, and even today, one of the most real things on TV. It's all coming up on Bullseye. No flipping. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Carol Kane. Carol's a veteran actress. She started acting in 1971. Started out with some really heavy roles. One of her first films was in the Mike Nichols movie, Carnal Knowledge. Later on, she'd work in other classics like Annie Hall, Dog Day Afternoon. She was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar for her part in the 1975 film Hester Street. But she found her home doing comedy, something she never expected she'd do coming up. She appeared on Taxi as the wife of Lotka, Andy Kaufman's character. She was in the Muppet movie, The Princess Bride, Scrooged, a bunch more. Now in the Netflix series The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, she plays Lillian, Kimmy's landlord. The third season went live earlier this month. Kane's performance is typical of her work. It's a kind of pedal-to-the-metal madness that makes her so brilliant and hilarious. Here's a clip from last season. In this scene, her tenant Titus, played by Titus Burgess, just rented out his apartment to a couple on Airbnb. Lillian, his landlord, pretty upset about it. <gasps> How could you? What were you thinking bringing internet people into our neighborhood? I was thinking I could get $80 to buy a wonderful box of capes that I saw at a medical supply store. Don't you get it? They're hipsters, and that means gentrification. Ah, listen to me. I miss the old days when the longest word I knew was friggin' Giuliani. They're not hipsters. They're just two hayseeds from Texas whose bodies will wash up in the East River in a couple of weeks. Crabs eating their eyes, their genitalia stuffed in their mouths. Stop telling me what I want to hear. I like the neighborhood the way it is. 
Morning, Method Charlie. Why can you Well, it doesn't matter. I guess we'll be here later today. Carol Kane, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be had. I forgot about the box of capes from the medical <laughs> supply store. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've lived in New York a long time. Yes. Um, since you were a teenager, right? Yes. I, I moved to New York when I was 12. And before that, I had been moving around with my family a great deal. So I consider myself a New Yorker because... I've lived there the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Did you move to New York because you wanted to be an actress, or was it a convenient coincidence? Well, uh, when I was 12, my mother had moved there. My parents were divorced, and my mother moved to New York. And I, I did decide that I was going to go to a school called Professional Children's School, which was a school where if you got a job, you could do your homework by correspondence. You could check out during the day to go audition for things. It was a very hard school, but you they supported the working kid. And so that's where I went. I was obsessed. And people say New York doesn't support the garment industry. You see that? <laughs> Um, it, it was pretty great, but they uh, all the kids there were working kids. Was that weird? I mean, you had you were born in like Cleveland, right? You had lived in regular places. To tell a little story, I don't think any place I ever lived was regular because I and my family were there, <laughs> and, and, and we, were, we were a rather complicated lot. So, I mean. It was what I wanted. It was what I had passion for. There were uh, a lot of the Balanchine ballerinas, and um, there was uh, a lot of costume designers, and it was just a very creative, fascinating kind of little strange world, you know. How did you figure out that young that you wanted to be an actress? Oh, I knew when I was about six or seven, because my mother in Cleveland brought me to a place called um, Heights Youth Theater, where there was a very professional director named Jerry Leonard, who expected of the seven-year-old kids a completely professional standard and would give you hell if you weren't living up to that. And I saw, you know, Alice in Wonderland and fell in love and decided I needed to be up there, just fell in love with it. I think I may have had in common with some other actors that, as I mentioned, my family was uh, shaky. It was uh, We were in shaky shape as a, as a unit. And I think that I saw a kind of a freedom and a magic up there that I felt that I could relate to and would make me happy and would take me out of my actual reality to some degree. I mean, I, I didn't have this kind of uh, intellectual idea about it then, but looking back, that's what I think I fell in love with. And I was always in love with makeup. My father was an architect, a brilliant architect. My mother was a dancer and a jazz singer, and they had beautiful books around the house of fantastic ballets and all kinds of sets and um, art, and I used to spend every Sunday all day long sitting in the bathroom with my makeup kit from FAO Schwartz and making my face up to try and match some of the photographs or paintings that I had seen. So I was always in love with the aesthetic part of it, too. It's interesting to me that you mention that idea of professionalism in a children's theater, that you have to show up on time and be held to a certain standard. Yes. You want me to give you an example? Sure. Okay. So the first play I was in was The Wizard of Oz, and I was a munchkin. Not to brag. But... Not to brag, but I mean, listen, it's my history. So then, you know, the munchkins have this thing when Dorothy lands where they say, you know, don't go to the east for in the east, but don't go to the west for in the west. So, you know, we were seven and um, we just pointed our hands whatever direction we wanted. Don't go to the east. And he, Jerry, came storming down the aisle of the theater and explained to us, that there was an east, west, north, and south, and 
there were specific directions we had to point in. We couldn't just randomly throw our arms around. And so he really, he had this professional standard. Like if anybody checked, we were pointing to the east when we said east. What was the first time you got paid to act? I joined both unions when I was 14. SAG at the time, now it's SAG after. I joined SAG and Equity when I was 14 and um, was in union plays and in union movies and even a, a pilot called The Happeners. And uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so 14. Were you like going off to – were you taking advantage of your school's uh, leeway and just heading off to auditions well, all the time? Whenever I could. I mean I didn't – you know, women of any age do not get as many auditions as men or boys. But whenever I could get one, I went to it, of course. What were you auditioning for? What What was 16-year-old Carol Kane's type? Was 16. No, not 16. 14. 14. I mean, I think I graduated when I was 16 and um, got to be in carnal knowledge shortly thereafter with that Mike Nichols directed. But what was I auditioning for? Mostly theater. What kind of parts? Well, serious in those days. I was a serious actress in those days. I, I auditioned for The Prime of Miss Jean Brody on Broadway 13 times and did not get it. I just thought I was would not survive, and then I did. Um, was lucky enough to get to do it on the road with the fantastic Tammy Grimes, who we just lost, and that was a great experience. One of the things that I love about your character on Kimmy Schmidt is that. You know, I think it, in many ways, like parts of your career have been defined by the fact that you have a really distinctive voice and a, you're really distinctive looking. Um, you're very beautiful, but you and you have this sort of wonderful grand hair and always have. Thank you. And that lends itself towards, you know, you've often played mousy characters. Mm. And one of the things that I love about Kimmy Schmidt is that it is so undeniably you, but it is also the furthest thing from a mousy character. It's a character with... No limits. She got to no rather big mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And great writing. I know that's kind of fun to just get to say anything. In fact, some of the things I say just shock me. You know me, Carol. <laughs> like Lillian does things that I would never do. That I'd be way too self-conscious for. So it's kind of fun to be legally asked to do some shocking things and say some shocking things. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week, Carol Kane. She's in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, the new season available on Netflix now. Sometimes the jokes on Kimmy Schmidt, and this was true of 30 Rock as well, are so fast and dense oh and so complex that I lose them as a viewer. And I'm a very serious comedy viewer who prides himself on not missing anything, right? <laughs> and uh, I miss it sometimes. And I wonder, it, it must be extraordinarily challenging to nail every one of those intricate jokes. Well, it's very hard, but thank goodness uh, Gina Fay and Robert Carlock are very hands-on. They're down there on the floor with us. And if we don't get it, we do it again, and they explain it, and they fix it until it's until you got it. They don't go away from it. unless. And then the other thing is about Kimmy, which I've never experienced before, is that there are things that I say on Kimmy that I don't understand what they mean at all. They're so um, up to date that they're almost like ahead of time. You, you know, and they they are things to do with the, the modern computer world and everything that's hip and cool and of the moment. And I don't know. I've got references to, you know, things that I say. I just say them and people laugh and and then later I say, well, what does that mean? You know, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll try and understand what it means before I say it. And they try and explain to me, and I sometimes still don't understand. But I commit and I do my best. You mentioned Carnal Knowledge, which was your, your first significant film role, right? Yes, it was. And 
It must have been something extraordinary to be a teenager and walk into a room with your first movie director, and it's Mike Nichols. It was shocking, <laughs> and especially because when I was cast, um, they were already shooting up in Vancouver, and I was in New York, and I went to Marion Dougherty's office and met Juliet Taylor, who was um, Marion's partner at the time and assistant, and she explained to me they're already shooting, they haven't been able to find this character yet, and... I'm going to be sending Mike your photograph and resume and stuff like that in Vancouver. So she did that, and then we got word back that I was to fly up to Vancouver, and if Mike liked me, I would be staying to shoot the whole part, and if it didn't work out, I would be back on a plane the next day. And I'm a teenager. You know, my mother later explained to me that behind my back, she got on the phone with the producer and said, if you're going to put my daughter through this, you're going to fly her first class, you know, <laughs> which I think at the time was a rule anyway. But, uh, but <laughs> um, you know, because she knew how depressed I would be if I didn't get it. But instead, you know, I walked in this office up there in the studio out in the middle of the woods in Vancouver, and I met Mike and... um he was a miracle. He is a miracle in my life. You know, he's such a great artist, and he accepted me in like I was supposed to be there. And, uh, well, going back to the whole thing about childhood, I think I, in some ways, felt that I was home for the first time. And then he took me into the screening room where they were showing the rushes, and... In that room was Jack Nicholson, Jules Pfeiffer, and Arthur Garfunkel, you know, sitting around, talking, hi, this is, you know, Carol. I, I mean, I was just in shock, you know, and I did get to stay, and I did get to work on that movie with those, with that brilliant script and brilliant actors, DP, um, Mike was a genius, Mary Ellen Mark who we also lost recently. She was the still photographer. She took one of the best pictures of me just out in the woods with no makeup that anyone has ever taken. It's a work of art. She was an artist, and that's... I was privileged to start that way and then, you know, privileged to continue along those same lines with Hal Ashby and Sidney Lumet and Woody Allen. And, I mean... I look back and I just can't understand how such things could have happened to me. We've got some more of my interview with Carol Kane after a quick break. She'll tell me about how even after almost five decades of acting, she's never gotten over being rejected for a part. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Have you heard Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR? When news moves fast, it's the quick morning update on what happened and what you need to start the day. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning by 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, AT&T's Audience Network, and their new original series, Fearless, with Tim Ferriss. Ferris is an author, entrepreneur, and podcaster who spends his life asking questions and scouring the globe for answers. Now he's sitting down with renowned performers to dissect strategies to succeed. Premieres May 30th on Audience. Watch Fearless with Tim Ferriss on DirecTV, UVerse, or stream on DirecTV now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Carol Kane. She's a legendary character actress. She's on the TV show The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which just entered its third season on Netflix. Did you understand contextually at the time how significant the things that you were getting to work on were? Or because it was your first work, did you think, I, I guess this is what it's like? You're just there with Mike Nichols, or you're just there with Hal Ashby, or you're there with Sidney Lumet. I think it's, uh, my reaction would be a combination of both things. I think because I was so young, I did not understand the potential for failure. 
I think the older I got, the more I would sort of back into the meeting room or audition room because I already knew that the big chances were on rejection. But in those days, I didn't understand that, you know. So I think I was more myself when I went in uh, because I, I, I think I felt that that was my world, you know. And looking back, I can't believe my fortune. But at the time, I also, of course, knew the quality of the artistry of those directors. And, um, you know, it's never like I took that for granted, but I think I took more for granted the idea that I might fit in. And that's significant in the way you present yourself in a room. You know, you're not chattering with your teeth and going in backwards, which is my technique nowadays. (laughs) I mean, I think it's amazing to me that you, as someone who's worked as an actress for nearly 50 years, uh, and a lot of actors, part of what they develop in their lives is a kind of defense against failure because they never get the part. I couldn't do it. And you got the reverse. Like you you were blindly you were blindly falling into beautiful and spectacular art at the beginning of your career and didn't have to worry about it and when the reality of failures started to hit you it weighed upon you more and more as your career went on rather than the reverse. Oh, definitely more and more. My mother's always saying to me, "Honey, you just got to try and develop a a little thick skin, you know, and I just never was able to do that. I just, I guess the best example of that is that a few years ago, I was on Broadway in Wicked, and during that time, I was asked to audition for Pippin on Broadway to uh, replace the genius Andrea Martin. And for various crazy reasons, the audition process went on for about a year because I'd be scheduled, but then the director would be directing something else out of town, and they they were trying to get everybody in the same room at the same time, and that kept not happening for all kinds of reasons. And I kept hiring a, a vocal coach every time over a period of a year because I'm not a natural singer, even though I was fortunate enough to do Wicked, but I'm the Rex Harrison kind of, the talk singer. And... I would study and study, and then it didn't work out. And I finally got to audition, and I thought it had gone rather well because the everybody in the theater stood up and applauded after my audition, and then I didn't get it. And I was so devastated, you know. I was just crawling around the floor <laughs> weeping, and um, then I thought to myself, you can't do this anymore. I realized that I couldn't take it, that I was too old to put myself through that anymore. And I stopped. And as soon as I stopped, the miracle happened that I got called to meet with Tina and Robert and Jeff Richmond, the Kimmy Schmidt people, and I was also offered to play the role of the Penguin's mother on Gotham, both of those things happened right after I said, I can't do it anymore, the auditioning. So, I don't know, that's just a miracle, but it, it's true. I want to play a clip of you in 1975. My guest is Carol Kane, and this is from Dog Day Afternoon, which was directed by Sidney Lumet. Yes. And your character's name is Jenny, and um, the, the film is about a group of people being held hostage uh, at a bank. And Sonny, who's played by Al Pacino, is, is one of the bank robbers who is holding them hostage. And in this scene— And John Cazale. Exactly. And, and he, calls, uh, he, he calls you into the room to tell you that your husband's on the phone. <laughs> and yeah. we'll also hear that in the middle of the conversation, uh, Sonny gets a phone call from the chief of police. So we'll hear Sonny first. There was Jenny here. Who's Jenny here? That's me. It's the squabble. You got a husband? Yeah, well, he's on a phone. Go ahead. What could I tell him? I don't know. Tell him whatever you tell him. Tell him the truth. Oh, what a comedy. WNEW plays all the hits. Listen, now don't hang up. 
First off, is anybody hurt in there? No, nobody's hurt. Well, you keep away from this bank, or we're going to start throwing bodies out the front door one at a time. You got that? Listen, don't do that now. Wait a minute. Let me talk to you for a while, huh? How many people you got in there, eh? I can, No, you call me back. Call me back. Excuse me. He said he wants to know what time you'll be through. What? How oh, girly, please. Uh, that was Charlie Durning. Uh, the brilliant Charlie Durning has the chief of police on the phone. Sidney Lumet directed movies in a way as though he were directing theater, right? He was Yes. We rehearsed like a play. By the time the rehearse and most movie directors tend not to like to rehearse very much. But Sidney, um we got in a rehearsal room and we worked for three and a half, four weeks on the movie and we got to the point where we could run the whole script from top to bottom, <clears throat> because and which is so helpful because movies are not usually shot in any kind of continuity. But if you get to rehearse the whole thing, then you organically are familiar with where you might be at any, any given time. This is pretty great. I feel like it might have been a benefit to be able to do that if you are a nervous performer, that you, by getting the whole thing as second nature, it gives, it gives you a certain kind of freedom. Oh, yes. And and by the way, though, most people are nervous performers. I mean, uh, not everybody maybe is in such a panic as I when they go in for auditions, but I don't know too many performers who don't. But you know why that is? Because the, the really wonderful actors, uh, musicians, whatever, uh, painters uh, are perfectionists. And so you're not um, nervous necessarily for the other people. You're nervous because you're wrestling with yourself to be as good as you know you're supposed to be, you have to be, you must be. So, of course, when you're allowed to really uh, inhabit a a role uh, in the way that that rehearsal time gives you, the freedom is fantastic. And also, you get to know your fellow players in a way. You're not just, you know, half the time you're saying, oh, nice to meet you, and then you're in in bed with somebody in a love scene. But this way, you you really know each other as people. You, You can look into each other's eyes and know, interpret the kind of feelings that you're getting in such a personal way. It's really a luxury. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Carol Kane. She's in the third season of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, just launched on Netflix. I want to play a scene with you from Annie Hall from 1977. Uh, of course, a, a truly brilliant and an amazing, hilarious film. Um, Woody Allen's character is Albie Singer, um, and he is a. It, it was a, the movie was originally billed, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, as a as a nervous romance. Um, and Woody Allen's character, Albie Singer, is a comedian, and he's booked on a show that your character, Allison, is producing. And he and Allison are arguing about going up on stage after another comic. No, I'm sorry. I'm not, I, don't, I, can't, I don't want to go on after another comedian. It's okay. No, because they're, they're laughing, so I, I, I'd rather not. If you Will don't you mind, relax, prefer, please? They're going to love you. I, I know. I prefer not to because, look, they're laughing at him. See? So what yes. are you telling me? that I've got, They're going to laugh at him for a couple of minutes, and i got to go out there. i got to get laughs, too. How much can they laugh? They're, they're laughed out. Do you feel all right? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> What's your name? Allison? Yeah. Allison what? Porchnik. Porchnik? Nice. So, uh, what are you telling me? You work for Stevenson all the time or what? No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm in the midst of doing my thesis. On what? A political commitment in 20th century literature. You, you like New York Jewish left-wing liberal intellectual Central Park West Brandeis University with the socialist summer camps and the, the father with the Ben Sean drawings, right? And the really, you know, strike-oriented kind of... Uh, stop me before I make a complete imbecile of myself. No, that was wonderful. I love being reduced to a cultural stereotype. <laughs> and then they were married. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't know until very recently... That Annie Hall was conceived as a pretty dramatically different movie than it ended up being. 
in the end, it's it became a romance about Woody Allen's character and Diane Keaton's character. Um, but it was originally almost free associative, right? Well, okay. I must be honest with you. I didn't know this until recently either. Because <laughs> <clears throat> when um, you work for Woody, uh, sometimes you just get the scenes that you're in. So I never got to read the whole script, so I knew from nothing, and except what my scenes were, and, and there was one scene that was cut out that we shot also. Uh, so, But then recently somebody did tell me that I think it was the editor who suggested to Woody that the, the gold, as it were, was what was happening between him and Diane. And I guess that turned it into a romance. And I think, uh, as I understand it, it was originally titled Anhedonia, which defines an a inability to experience pleasure, as you see <laughs> Alvy Singer has that, uh, has that trait. And um, so, yeah. Did you think of yourself then as funny? Oh, God, no. Uh-uh. Because you had oh. been, you had been one of your first films. You were nominated for uh, an Oscar for playing the, and we would have played a clip of it if the movie wasn't almost all in Yiddish, for playing a first generation immigrant who goes through the transformation in early twentieth century America of trying to be like a very serious film where you did very serious acting. Right. So no, I I knew nothing about. Comedy. I never thought of myself as funny, and um, the first comedic role I was given was uh, a year after I was nominated, and I did not. Not only did I not work for that whole year, I never even had a meeting or an audition after I was nominated because I was playing a Russian Jewish immigrant at the turn of the century who spoke Yiddish and wore a horsehair scheidel. So there weren't a lot of those roles out there. Um, <laughs> That's a tough thing to be typecast yeah, as. Yeah, and then the, like almost a year to the day. They're like, uh, we'd, li- we'd like to cast you, but um, we're looking for an actress who shows her hair. Shows yeah, her and natural speaks hair. English. <laughs> yeah. um, so almost a year after that, I got a call from Gene Wilder another miracle and he offered me the part of his wife in the world's greatest lover and that was absolutely the first i had heard of or thought of me being in a comedy i watched the princess bride recently and it's a movie that i probably hadn't seen in 10 years but that i had seen as a kid conservatively 25 times. Is that right? Oh, yeah, wow. absolutely. Well, maybe your little meatball head will start seeing it soon. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a five-year-old, and I was thinking, yeah, six or seven, I think, is about where I could start in. I was really thrilled at how much I loved it as a grown adult with kids, as much as I had loved it as a kid. That's so exciting. And I, I want to play your scene from it. Um, so you played opposite Billy Crystal, who um, is, was so hilarious. The two of you are uh, called Max and Valerie. He is a miracle worker, kicked out of the castle by the king, formerly the king's miracle, miracle Max. worker. Miracle Max. And uh, the, the two of you together have magical powers slash uh, sort of... <laughs> it's like what if they gave magical powers to a set of first-generation New York Jewish immigrants... <laughs> See, we're back to that again. Yeah, exactly. Aren't we? It's a it's a real it's a real biali of a uh, role. Turn uh, 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 New York Jewish immigrants who also work in in the uh, Borscht Belt circuit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's very Borscht Belty. Um, so in so they, basically, our heroes have come to them begging for help to revive someone from the grave, uh, to, re, to to revive the the star of the film from the grave, and. Uh, Max, Miracle Max, Billy Crystal's character, not having it. Uh, your character, Valerie, about to give him the business for not having it. Liar! Liar! Get back, witch! I'm not a witch, I'm your wife! But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be that anymore! You never had it so good. To love, he said to love, Max. Don't say My another God. word, Valerie! He's afraid. Ever since Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. 
This is Buttercup's true love. If you heal him, he will stop Humperdinck's wedding. I make him better, Humperdinck's office. Humiliations galore. I did a lick, Nation. That is a noble cause. Give me the 65. Come on, the job. For folks at home, while that was playing on your radio or in your headphones, uh, I was treated to a little dramatic reenact, a silent dramatic reenactment from a very happy Carol Kane. Well, you can't say that I don't love it because I do. (laughs) And I just, Philly just cracks me up. And then to hear the beautiful intensity of Mandy's voice, I mean, just fantastic. Mandy Pritikin really does bring a kind of, uh, it's the same passion and integrity that he brings to singing Coffee in a Cardboard Cup. Exactly. He brings to this absurd fairy tale character, yes. a sort of beautiful, elegiac Yes, passion. that's right. And it couldn't work any other way. But this is like the ideal gig. I mean, this is a gig that's not unlike an, another one of uh, your wonderful roles from around the same time in, in the Bill Murray movie Scrooge, oh. where you get to come in and just you just get to do it to it. Like you probably had a couple days on set, but you just get to go have a goofball blast. I do. I cannot tell a lie. And I, I think that... I'm not going to say it. <laughs> say mind. it. No, I get. Say I it. think. I think. Uh, you know. I think that I didn't know exactly how to do the stunt work aspect of it <clears throat> because I ended up being my own stunt double, and I believe that Mr. Murray may have <laughs> suffered a few actual injuries because of my <laughs> lack of knowledge, and I worship him and. <laughs> You know, he's right now. Talk about a you, dramatic actor doing comedy. You play the ghost of Christmas present, and you do a fair amount of hitting and uh, manhandling of Bill Murray's character. The devil made me do it. It was written by Michael Donahue and Mitch Glazer, and they wrote this amazing character for me to play. And uh, I just had so much fun. And then. I was practicing learning my little ballet dance as I as I come in at the beginning, and then they were going to have a ballerina do the stunt part of it and stuff like that. But then Michael Weaver, the genius art director who's no longer with us, he came in to watch a rehearsal where I was trying harder than life itself to do a good job on point and everything with my dancing. And he was rolling on the floor laughing, which I'm telling you just about put me in tears because I was trying so hard. And then he went to Dick Donner and said that I had to do the ballet dance because (laughs) it turned out so funny because I was really trying my hardest. And then all the other, you know, flying and hitting him in the you-know-whats and slapping his face with my wings. And fortunately, I'll tell you in a Really fortunately, I did not actually hit his face with the toaster. I came close, but I missed. Thank God. We'll have more of my conversation with Carol Kane in just a bit. Don't go anywhere. Coming up, we'll talk about her character Lillian on Kimmy Schmidt and how Carol sees her New York fading away every day. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from New West Records with the new album from Justin Towns' Earl, Kids in the Street. With fearless lyrical insight and infectious melodic craftsmanship, the young veteran singer-songwriter has built a rich, personally charged set of new songs crossing genres from rockabilly to country to blues and roots. More information at justintownsearl.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Carol Kane in a minute. But first, let's talk about Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show here at MaximumFun.org. 
Every week, you hear a funny and fascinating conversation about what's going on in pop culture with some of the brightest minds out there. It's all hosted by our good pal Guy Branham. He's a stand-up comedian and the host of True TV's talk show, The Game Show, as well as, of course, Pop Rocket. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week we're going to be talking about medical dramas. We're going to be talking about all of your favorite medical procedurals from Grey's Anatomy all the way back to St. Elsewhere and beyond. Sounds good. Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Probably inside your telephone. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Carol Kane. She stars in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Its latest season premiered earlier this month. Anyone who works in my office will tell you that there are moments where we're trying to do work of some serious public radio. I mean, my job as a public radio host is to inform and educate the the populace yes. and provide them with a high-class arts education, etc. And I will, in the course of a very serious um, of a very serious interaction, start laughing while staring off into the middle distance because I'm just thinking of something funny that happened on Kimmy Schmidt. Like, Aww. I think a lot about a time when one of the characters said, "Stop the presses, my panini can wait." <laughs> uh, yeah, this just yeah. Do you have a favorite thing that you've gotten to say on the show? Gosh, so many things. I can't really think of. One thing this very second, I do know that um, I love working with our cast, and I particularly loved being in love with Fred Armisen and Mr. Durst, Mr. Bobby Durst. Uh, So, I mean, no, I can't pick one line because there's so many great ones. Uh, We have... uh... Uh, no, we don't. I thought we did. I thought we had a scene from that, but we don't. Oh, you don't? We, I, thought we had, I thought we had one of the Fred Armisen scenes, but we don't. We have several other scenes. But you have it. some other scenes. Play another yeah. scene. Okay, fine. Otherwise I'll, otherwise, I'll get Titus and Ellie and Jane in here and we'll reenact it for you. I'll play a season three scene. So your character runs for city council to basically, she is in a way, represents the spirit of Bohemian New York. She's very passionate about everything gross and free and exciting about living in New York. The individuality of neighborhoods. Exactly. Which is going away everywhere and certainly in New York. Uh, Jane Krakowski's character, Jacqueline, uh, is very rich and represents a very um, a very rich sort of Central Park Westy uh, voice. And... Um, uh, she is opposing uh, Lillian's uh, run for uh, neighborhood council because uh, she's she's trying to run for neighborhood council to, to uh, end gentrification, essentially. And Ellie Kemper's character, Kimmy, the main character, is caught in between them, her two uh, sort of mentor figures in a funny way. Uh, and basically this scene is uh, the two of them trying to talk Ellie into – uh, going their way. Oh, okay, now listen, you're going to vote for me tomorrow, aren't you, dear? Of course. But if you vote for her, she's going to stop me from bringing clean water to this neighborhood. Really? Mm-hmm. That's why you need to vote for any candidate but Lillian. No! If this yuppie and her yuppie boyfriend clean up the sludge front, boy, yuppies are moving. And you know what yuppies eat? Brussels sprouts. Yeah. And ice cream that tastes like lavender. No, that's a smell. But you'll have the most beautiful new waterfront with ducks in it. Ducks that have babies. Oh, how many? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Our rent will be jacked up so high, we'll probably have to move to Hart Island where they bury all the unclaimed bodies. Now I forget... Do you like sleeping in a giant pit full of skeletons? You know I don't. <laughs> That's a smell. Um, you know, as a very nearly lifelong New Yorker now, it must be fun to get to be that, you know, as grand and ridiculous as the character is. She is an advocate for something really beautiful, uh, something that I know a lot of people who live in New York and who have lived in New York really care about, which is what's 
what's special about it, the, the craziness. The melting pot of it all, the individuality, the uh, fantastic array of colors and shapes and sizes of people and bookstores and uh, movie theaters that are not chain movie theaters, all of the things that are rapidly disappearing about the city, neighborhoods. You know, the, New York is full of every nationality of neighborhood. And now every, a lot of things are getting kind of homogenized together so that um, when you... I mean, I remember when you got on a subway on the Upper West Side, there'd be a certain special individual thing about that neighborhood, and you would go downtown, way downtown, and get off the subway, and everything would be completely different there. And now, you know, you get on the subway uptown, and there's Dwayne... Dwayne Reed, am I allowed to say yeah, that? Yeah, sure. And then uh, you get on the subway way, way downtown, get off, and there's the same Dwayne Reed and everything else, all the banks. and the, So that that's a shame, you know. The neighborhoods are, are going away. Did you ever have a person in your life like this? I mean, this character reminds me of multiple neighbors that I had as a kid in the Mission District in San Francisco. Does, does it, Mrs. Yeah. Love, who once threatened to kill my dog if it peed on her house anymore at a God time when I was <laughs> young enough to oh, young geez. enough to still not understand that that was not a literal threat. Oh, God. My mom had to explain to me that oh. it wasn't literal. Yeah, I mean, of course, if you live in New York, you know those people. I mean, just let's talk about Radio Man, if you want to know one of those people. I mean, yes, there's a lot of uh, oversized characters. Wait a minute. Can we talk about Radio Man? Do you know who Radio Man is? No. Well, then it doesn't really, it won't be that interesting to talk about. But Radio Man (laughs) is a man who lives in New York, who looks like a very scruffy bum, who also in an acknowledged way for many people, bore a shocking resemblance in his features to Robin Williams, especially if Robin had a beard or something like that. But he goes everywhere with a radio around his neck and plays his radio, and he's an autograph hound uh, seeker, and he is outside every theater for a million years. He has also been in many, many movies now, many movies as himself as Radio Man. And uh, he actually, at this point, and he knows where everything is shooting in New York on any given day, he can tell you. And now if you call his cell phone number, which he has online, then there'll be a rundown of who's shooting where, what, you know, where Bobby is, where Al is. He, he knows who, what's happening everywhere in the city. Uh, but he's also still outside uh, getting autographs and, at night. And so he's just a supreme, fantastic example of a New York character fixture. Carol Kane, I couldn't be more grateful to you for uh, coming in and talking to me. What a what a joy and an honor it was to get to talk to you. I feel the same way. Thank you. Oh, false flattery, but I'll take it. <laughs> Carol Kane, everybody. Catch her in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, live on Netflix now. She is so great in it, I can't even begin to tell you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Chris Fairbanks is one of my favorite stand-up comics. He's been on Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Kimmel, Comedy Central. His stand-up is really unique, kind of improvised. He basically basically blunders up to the microphone and barely makes his way through any of his jokes. Anyway, a treat for you. About a year ago, we were lucky enough to host Chris at Max FunCon last year. It's our annual gathering in the woods organized by MaximumFun.org, my company who make this show. Uh, Max FunCon's coming up. It's just around the corner, so... We thought we'd honor it with a little bit from our friend, Chris Fairbanks. Someone made me a, was that a remote control helicopter? Someone <laughs> made me breakfast in bed recently, and it's, I, it was my first time. And it's common. It's pretty common, right? Breakfast in bed. But it's weird if you think about it. Breakfast in bed is like, it's like you're saying, uh, well, it's Sunday. I think today... I want to pretend like I'm dying in the hospital. 
bad, of course a bad pan. It's Father's Day, isn't it? Get in here, you little rugrats. Where are you? I can't see you on account of the blurry vision. See, he is dying, and that's a confusing joke. I don't understand uh, birds as a pet. That's weird, right? It's like, uh, hey, bird, how about I buy you and put you in a cage? You're miserable. I watch your whole life. What do you say? All right. I don't know. No, nah, maybe like a, I guess if you get like a cockatoo or a, or a parrot, that would be because you can teach them to say stuff. It's kind of fun. I don't know. If I had a parrot, I'd teach him to say, uh, help, I used to be a man and a curse was put on me. I missed my wife. And then be like, oh, cool bird. Yeah, I know. It's pretty cool. This isn't all I do, comedy. I used to do a lot of art, like uh, illustration, and uh, I do some voiceover and some getting into computer animation. Actually, have you seen the, it's a commercial for Lamisil uh, where a tiny monster opens a toenail like a hatch door and climbs into the fungus-filled environment that is the toe. That was some of my work. You see, I also do some foot modeling. I, nah, I don't know. It's all right. It's not the best. Now, my, no, my, my nose, my, my nose tails, my nose tails are dope. My toenails are also, now nah, they were awful. Looks like ginger root down there, but let's talk about these guys. That's kind of funny. I, uh, older, older ladies are always, uh, older ladies are always going, ooh, nice nails. And I'm like, why are all these old ladies trying to me? And I, I think that, uh, they are, they are right. They're very shiny. Uh, they're white at the base and white at the tip. That's what someone wants. I don't even ask for it. I just get it. And they're, they're always, they're always looking. And here's the funny thing. I don't clip them. I just, I'm nervous, kind of. You might, if you know me, I, and I bite my nail all the time. But I'm good at it. And I'm, it's like pull, pop, perfect edge. A lot of amateurs are like, taxes. And then it's like serrated knife. Get back under a bridge or something mean. Uh, but mine are in, so I think I want to open a salon where women just sit in chairs and I come up and I chew their nails for them. Yeah, I knew you. Yeah, you guys got A friend of mine, <coughs> a friend of mine's a uh, scientist. He's always been real smart. He's an engineer and now he's a scientist. And he told me, uh, he lives in North Carolina now. He said that the Appalachian Mountain Range uh, did I get... Oh, just lighting changed. It just means the world will end someday. I, uh, he told me the Appalachian Mountains are getting higher and higher each year by a foot. Isn't that a lot? Because of tectonic plates or something. I don't know. I didn't listen, but it's... It continue. I'm like, for how... Just now? He's like, forever. And so, you guys, I don't think I'm being a bigot when I say the South will rise again. Thank you. It's pretty good. I don't know why you... Some of you got weird... When I was young, I liked animals. My mom was vegan, and uh, I've always liked animals. And um, when I was younger, I tried to get a job at PETA, and I didn't get it. I don't know why. I think I was nervous, maybe. I don't know what I... I think maybe it was a mistake having brought my lucky rabbit's foot. (laughs) I do a lot of character... uh, character, I do a lot of characters, uh, character work for charity. (laughs) You know, there's chids out there. Some of them are just children in their whole lives. They never see a good character. That's why I started my character, charity characters for children and chids for Christmas. Christmas time, we would do it. Merry Christmas. Anyway, here's one of the characters, and I hope you enjoy it. Say goodbye to me for a minute. <laughs> one door closes. Another one opens. Thanks. Uh, that's my impression of a guy trying to stay positive while living in a haunted house. <laughs> Ran out of breath. <sighs> All right. I think that's... Uh, did you guys like dinner? <laughs> my biggest laugh. I, uh, that's good. I got fajitas the other... I went to a Mexican place. I always want fajitas, and then I, then you, I always forget that they're going to be obnoxiously sizzling. That's always... It's like, oh, I'll have the fajitas. Oh, <laughs> and then they come out. <laughs> it's like, oh, f-. and you have to like wave your hand and owner. Everyone's like, look, who got the fajitas? Is George Clooney here? <laughs> it's like, don't touch it. It's hot. If you tell me the plate's hot, I'm going to rest my face on it. Is it really? You were right, beans. You were right, beans. Get my shirts afterwards. You were right, comma, beans. Exclamation point. Fairbanks. The- 
Hey, what's, uh, hey, is Jesse here? No, he went to bed. <laughs> hey, what's with all these owls graduating from something? I mean, every time I see an owl graduation hat, I mean, I know you're a wise bird, Mr. Owl, but I haven't seen you on campus all year. Here you are now at the commencement ceremony with your tassel to the right. What's your major, Owl, if you're so damn smart? Well, I first got interested in anatomy when I puked up my first intact mouse skeleton, but then I moved on to statistics. You see, I started monitoring my Tootsie Pop licks. Okay, I've heard enough. You're not bad, Owl. See you in the quad for some ultimate frisbee. That yeah, kind of tapers off there, huh? <sighs> yeah, I should probably end on that because that was dope. All right, I'm all done. Thanks, you guys. Chris Fairbanks, live at MaxFunCon last year. Uh, one of the best in the business. He co-hosts the podcast, Do You Want to Ride, with uh, the great Karen Kilgariff. Regular MaxFunCon is already sold out. It's uh, in about, I guess, a week from now. Wow. MaxFunCon East is coming up Labor Day weekend in the Poconos on the East Coast. Tickets are still available to that. Uh, you can find tickets and more information at maxfuncon.com. Chris Fairbanks also has a great album called Fairbanks! Exclamation mark. It was released in 2010. But classic. Evergreen, as we call it in the business. We like to finish every episode of Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation. It's the outshot. The idea came to Gary Shandling one day when he was on set. He was working on his sitcom, or actually his meta-sitcom, on It's Gary Shandling's show. Shandling talked to the audience directly. He crossed between sets with the camera still on him. He lived in a three-wall replica of his own actual real-life living room. It was very funny, a lot of ironic remove. Anyway, on one of the episodes of the show, Shandling played a talk show host. And he said that as he was sitting there on the talk show set, he just had a thought. What if there was a show about a talk show, a fiction show, that was realistic? Shandling turned down a real late-night talk show. It's going to come on after Leno to do that fictional talk show show. It was called The Larry Sanders Show. Now that sign says applesauce. No, no, <laughs> I, I'm kidding. It says applause. Ray, do me a favor. Could you flick that once? Now, remember, you're all, you're all a big part of the show, so the better you are, the better Larry is. Okay, now, you see this gentleman? Now, he's giving me this, uh, this sign, and it says, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. This is exciting, isn't it? The Larry Sanders Show opened on a plain black screen. Then we heard the deep, reassuring voice of Jeffrey Tambor, walking a studio audience through the rules of a TV taping. It's mesmerizing, but it's also almost disconcerting. Not just because staring into a void is disconcerting, but because it pushes us outside the show as we watch. It's almost Brechtian to start the show with this acknowledgement of where a show comes from. But then it pulls us back, past the perspective of the studio audience, into the world of the creators. Often on The Larry Sanders Show, the camera would fade in on a high shot of the TV talk show studio, a bird's eye view of the audience, the stage, the lights, a shot that revealed intentionally the artifice of showbiz. The Larry Sanders Show was a show about putting on a show, not like one of those let's put on a show musicals from the 30s, not about plucky get-up-and-go singers and dancers trying to save the rec center. It was a show about where a show comes from, about the actual world of scared, vain, confused grown-ups who make entertainment. Oh, I like the show tonight, Larry. Oh, did you see the commercial parody? I love that. But Hank saying coconut, that was a little confusing. Yeah, I mean, uh, aren't there shaving creams that are coconut-scented? Right. I couldn't agree with you more on this one, which frightens me, quite frankly. He was supposed to say chicken. Chicken? Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem that funny either. No, chicken is funny in the context of a smell that goes on your face. Tr trust me. The Larry Sanders Show revolved around three main characters. Hank Kingsley, 
is that voice that we hear, the sidekick played by Jeffrey Tambor, one of the greatest performances in TV history. Hank's a dope. He's almost purely venal. He's the butt of everyone's jokes. He's also somehow genuinely sweet. He's a little bit like a dog, dumb, confused, but fiercely loyal. To some extent, he's a satirical version of Ed McMahon. Hank's catchphrase is, hey now, instead of hi-o. But Hank is a lot more than that. We understand instinctively how he got this job, despite how incompetent he seems. It's because he always is what he is. As pathetic and unfunny and bald as Hank is, he's always there for the host and he's always there for the show. He's real. He's a pro. One of my favorite scenes is one where he teaches Larry to do commercials on camera. The product they're supposed to be selling is a tool. It's called the Garden Weasel. And Larry absolutely has failed completely to talk about it sincerely on camera. And he and Hank talk about it while Larry's getting made up. Can I uh, ask you something about these commercials? I am, I don't know what the heck I'm doing out there, Hank. I need a little advice. You've done like 20,000 of these things. Tell me something. Well, you know, Larry, everybody thinks it's easy. It isn't. It's an art. Yeah. Okay, well, look. Uh, if you don't believe in, in your product, right. okay, you gotta, you gotta, you got to substitute something you do believe in. Okay. Okay, for instance, when I'm out there and I'm pitching uh, the pearl cream that keeps you looking right, young. Right, right. I've seen that. Do you what? know what I'm thinking? You're not thinking about the pearl cream? No, sir, I'm not. What are you thinking about? America. Everything she stands for. Rip Torn plays Artie. He's the producer of the show. Torn is a legendary actor. He studied under Lee Strasberg at the actor's studio. He was also famously mercurial. Torn once told Studs Terkel, I have certain flaws in my makeup, something called irascibility. I get angry easily. I get saddened by things easily. It's a bit of an understatement, coming from a guy who once hit a director with a hammer. Artie is a perfect expression of Torn's controlled wildness. Artie lies and cheats, fights, drinks, does whatever it takes to fulfill a very simple objective. Protect Larry. That had to be written on Torn's script in big black letters. Protect Larry. No matter what, he fights for Larry. Nothing could be more important or more vital to him. Nothing matters more than Larry, because Larry is the one who is standing on that mark on stage, facing the cameras when the red light goes on. Any thoughts? No, but I'd like to... I'm not to sure that anyone wants to hear what you've got to say, young lady. Now, don't take this as a threat, but I killed a man like you in Korea, hand to hand. My boy doesn't want to do any more commercials. From now on, you'll talk to me. Understood. And then, standing on that mark, there's Larry. Vain, scared. He's terrified of the spotlight, terrified to leave it. His ego's extraordinary, but he fights at every turn not to be a Hollywood jerk. He just doesn't quite know how to pull it off. After work, he sits at home, more or less friendless, watching himself on TV, stewing in his own juices. I'm going to... I'm going to... Tell you something that I, I wouldn't tell you if you were, weren't leaving. Is it going to hurt my feelings? No, I don't think it's going to hurt your feelings. I, I happen to really like you. I mean, um, you know, I'm not a happy man. I know that I, I hide it pretty well, but the truth is, is uh, I could always look forward to you kind of making me smile and... Me? Yeah. Yeah. In an odd way, I thought we've always understood each other. You and me. And I wouldn't say this to someone, you know, that I was working with, but I really like you, Paula. Okay. So maybe we can go out to dinner or something when this is all, you know... I don't think so. Why not? I'm not your type. My breasts are real. You know, I can get used to that. Larry Sanders birthed a generation of great writers. Judd Apatow, for one. Peter Tolan, who wrote Analyze This and created Rescue Me. 
Paul Sims, who created News Radio and runs Divorce for HBO, Drake Sather, who wrote Zoolander, Stephen Levitan, who created Just Shoot Me and Modern Family. Seriously, I could go on like this for an hour. Shandling asked every writer very explicitly for realism. Partly that meant the kind of anecdotes they all had from working on comedy shows, weird network notes, fighting between writers, showbiz stuff, juicy stuff. That was the kind of stuff that people wrote about back when the show premiered 25 years ago. Like one time Dana Carvey guest started as himself, and but it was like a jerky version of himself. David Duchovny played himself with a crush on Larry. Inside baseball, meta stuff. That, that was new then, and it's funny. It's really funny. But realism meant something more than that to Shandling. He wanted every moment on Larry Sanders, every scene, every show, to be driven by real emotion. Not big-picture emotion, not audience emotion, not the warm fuzzies you get from a well-resolved plot, not characters hugging each other at the end, but actual character emotion. Shandling questioned every line. And the question was, is this feeling real? You know, Hank, I was just uh, wondering why you say that hey now thing. What do you mean? Well, it's just something that you used on the show, and now you're starting to use it in your personal life, and, and, and it's an affectation of some sort, isn't it? Did you ever say hey now as a, as a kid? No, I don't. I probably didn't. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I, uh, I said, uh, hey. Yeah. And I said, uh, now. I right, mean, right, right, at sure, different sure. times. I but see. I, I, no, I never put them together till later in life. Uh-huh. So, in that sense, it's, it's, uh, it's part of my personality. You know, Hank, this isn't easy for me, but uh, would you mind not doing it on the show anymore? Because... Uh, Frankly, I'll wait, tell you the wait truth. A minute. Are you telling me that when you yeah. do your, uh, you do you do this? That yeah. isn't the, the same affectation. That isn't the same as my. Hey now, there you just said it again, and you know I asked you not to say it. That was the secret of Larry Sanders. That's what took a clever show business satire and made it a great work of art. I've seen some great dramas on TV. There isn't one with more genuine human feeling than Larry Sanders. The show's hilarious. I mean, don't get me wrong. But it's not about jokes or wit. It's about this bunch of scared, confused people. About what it takes to put yourself on stage every night to reveal yourself to the world. About piloting a ship that's always on the verge of mutiny. About dirty tricks, hiding in closets, losing money, losing friends. Trying to move to Montana, then crawling back to Hollywood on your knees. And why it all seems worth it when people laugh. Ultimately, Gary Shandling didn't want to make a real talk show because he didn't want a fake laugh. He wanted to make something deeper. When he said he wanted to make something real, what he meant was he wanted to make something true. And that's The Larry Sanders Show. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Guess what? New AstroTurf on the soccer field this week. Our thanks to our city council and mayor for providing that. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The theme recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by them and by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. Got the best of this week's show and more. Dumb internet stuff we've been passing around the office here. Uh, maybe we'll even tip you off to an interview we've got coming up down the road. We're posting all of our interviews on YouTube, too. So if you want to share them with a friend or listen to them again, that's an easy place to find them. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.